From the time I was a young child, one of my absolute favorite movies has been The Empire Strikes Back. This middle film in the original Star Wars trilogy is unique in that its plot line really leads to the bad guys winning the film, right? It starts with the good guys running for their lives from the attacks of the oppressive empire's army. And our favorite heroes are chased all over the galaxy. They're captured. And the new hope that we met in the first film is being trained by Jedi Master Yoda. But he leaves without completing the training to attempt to rescue his friends. And the conclusion of the movie leaves us hanging wondering if it is really true that the hero is the son of the most evil man in the galaxy. Now, how many movies do you know of where the bad guys win? I know when I feel the tension in a movie, part of me says, well, the good guys are going to win in the end anyway. Just got to wonder how it's going to happen. That's the way movies usually go. How often does it happen where the bad guys win? Now, if I were to ask you to come up with some, you may come up with some, but I'm guessing maybe the one I just described may be the only one you easily remember. But that film does not end in complete despair. Yes, so much is up in the air. Will they be able to rescue Han Solo? Is Luke really Darth Vader's son? And will the rebel army that is perpetually on the run ever be able to formulate a significant attack against the evil empire? Well, the final scene of the movie has some of the heroes watching as their friends leave to rescue their captured friend. And as the camera pans out for us, we see that they're not alone. The rebel fleet has gathered. There is, once again, hope. Now, as we return to the story of Abraham from our break that we took for the Ascension and for Pentecost, we see that even Abraham is not immune from the curse that came into the world when Adam and Eve fell into sin. He has had a long life. Yes, Abraham lived a long time. He has trusted God to bring him the child of the promise. He has great material wealth and has become a small king in this region. But he has not fully possessed the promised land. Yet, he believes the promise of God so much that when his wife died, he legally acquired a piece of land to bury her in so that her remains would be in that land that God had promised to him. He is a picture of faith. He is a picture of blessing. But Abraham is still subject to the sad end that all humans must face. But yet, when we look at the end of Abraham's life, we see hope. As we read in 1 Thessalonians, and we'll get to it here in a couple of weeks in our public readings, 1 Thessalonians tells us that we do not grieve as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. We are not coming here to the end of a biography of an unbeliever as we read about Abraham. But instead, we come to one who believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we know that his death is not the end. But instead, we trust that Abraham has eternal life. And he looked forward, as we read in the book of Hebrews, he looked forward to the hope of the resurrection. We've come to the end of Abraham, but it's not the end of his 
his story. And it isn't the end of the bigger story of salvation. So as we have read about this final part of Abraham's life this morning, we find ourselves in a very, for lack of a better word, interesting passage. I really labored over this passage this week, and I I came to the conclusion that this is another passage where we have to look at the big picture. We really can't break this down into three points, we really can't go through it verse by verse. It just doesn't lend itself to that type of looking at it. But it is a really important passage because it brings us to the close of Abraham's story and moves us on to the story of Isaac and Jacob. It reminds us that even though Abraham is the most significant figure we've come across thus far, the story of Abraham isn't the ultimate story we're looking at here. This isn't the big story in the book of Genesis. There is something bigger that, we are, that we're moving towards because the story of redemption hasn't completed. And the story doesn't end with the death of Abraham. The promise of the one, the promise that was made all the way back in Genesis 3, the promise of the one who will crush the head of the serpent hasn't come yet. That prophecy, that promise from God hasn't yet been fulfilled. We are still waiting for Messiah. Even though Isaac is the child of the promise and we waited for him for so long, he isn't the child of the promise. And God's story for his covenant people isn't over yet. The Messiah is still going to come. And so we find ourselves here in this transitional passage. And it's similar to other parts of Genesis that we've observed. When there's a transition in Genesis from one significant phase of a story to the next, we find ourselves with a lot of names that I struggle to pronounce while I read them. It's not just you, even pastors struggle with that, okay? So I hope that makes you feel good. But that's how we know that the story is transitioning. It does a lot for us to help us to understand things that are going on. These aren't space-filling details when we come to these names. Moses, when he was writing the book of Genesis, wasn't in an email conversation with the publisher, and the publisher sends him an email saying, hey, we got to get this thing to 50 chapters or we're just not going to be able to sell it. Can you add in some filler, some meaningless stuff to add to the story? That, That wasn't what was happening. What the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write is significant, even the names of who begat so-and-so, and such-and-such. And such. These are all important things. It seems unnecessary for us. The names don't mean much to us because we don't know them. They actually would have meant a lot to the original audience of Genesis. And so as it starts out, by telling us that Abraham had another wife, and we, we need to look at this because when we read it, we would say, okay, that seems kind of odd, Why would Abraham take a wife at such a late stage in his life? And how did he have all these children in such a short period of time? Well, this passage does not suggest in any way that this is chronological, that this happened at the end of his wife. This is the story of Abraham's family apart from the covenant line of promise. And we know, we looked into the details many weeks ago, we know from the story of Hagar and Ishmael, that Abraham failed to trust God in many ways. He failed to trust that God would finally provide and fully provide the child of the promise. And so with the number of sons that he fathered, and we see that's quite a few, 
It's unlikely that all of them were born after the death of Sarah. We don't know for sure, but in the multiple sources I consulted during this week, the conclusion is that it's implied that Keturah was a concubine for Abraham through a significant portion of his life. And while this was sinful and not God's plan for Abraham, it was common in that time for these little kings of these small kingdoms to expand their kingdom and influence by having concubines and having as many children as possible to fill up their little kingdom. And the reason that it is assumed that this occurred in this way is because of the greater story that's being told here in this passage. In order to grasp what this passage is doing for us here, we have to think back to the other genealogies that we've been through in Genesis. The times where we read about the phrase, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat such-and-such, they were mapping out for us the family lines. And specifically, the most important ones that we've followed, as we've seen, are the ones following the covenant line to the child of the promise, the line leading to the Messiah. But we also saw ungodly lines, right? We looked at, for example, the family line of Cain. They were not in the line of the Messiah, but instead they were the children of the serpent. The covenant line of promise were the children of God. The children of the serpent we were following through uh, characters who were not in that line, but instead were um, in the non-line to the promise. So, these names and the names we looked at in the past, what were they doing? They were creating a tension for us. Is the line of the child going to be fulfilled? Or is the serpent going to overcome again? We're going back to the garden mentally every time we hear these, these genealogy stories. We come back to the garden and it says, is the serpent going to prevail or is God going to win? That's the tension that we feel here in the text. And so when we look at these family lines here and the way they're presented, we see what's happening because there's one name that we can recognize easily in here, the Midianites. And they're going to be a problem for the Israelites over and over again. And so what we're meant to understand as these names are being read is that these people are in opposition to the godly line. They're in opposition to the work of God and his covenant people. And so what we read here is that Abraham's Abraham's unfaithfulness to stay with his wife and to, to build his family in his own way apart from God's plan has caused tension between the godly line, his rightful son Isaac, and those that came out of his disobedience. And so this is a continued struggle. The chosen covenant people of God are struggling with the children of the serpent. And it's going to keep happening until the Messiah comes to crush the serpent's head. And so while you and I don't really fully understand what these family names and their origins mean here in Genesis... It's important that we see how this is telling the story of the opposition against the redemptive work of God. Now, the best way that I can come up with to help us grasp these names and why they're there is to think about our local, well, not our local, but our rival sports teams for our local, for our local teams, right? I, I sit in the bleachers a lot, and I sit next to folks And because I'm still relatively new, I don't know who everybody is from the other teams. Parents recognize former players, and often I get educated by my fellow fans. And it's good. I appreciate it. 
because it helps me to understand. They'll be looking through the program. Oh boy, they have the same last name of that girl that scored 30 points against us that one time. There's another one. We're in trouble. Oh, then somebody near us will say, I hear they've got a, got a son or another daughter in junior high, too. We're going to have to worry about that family for a while. In fact, just a few weeks ago at a junior high game, baseball game, I was told that one of the young players on the other team was the brother of so-and-so. That didn't mean anything to me. But other people around them, they knew, like, uh-oh, he was a good pitcher. I bet he's going to be one, too. You get the idea. These are family names that they would have recognized, and they are going to cause problems for the people of God. And obviously, the consequences are much higher in the book of Genesis than they are with our silly sports rivalries, right? But you get the general idea. And we see some familiar language as this first section we, uh, we are looking at here comes to a close. It says that Abraham gave all these sons gifts and sent them away from Isaac. And where were they sent? They were sent east. Now remember, we've, we've seen this theme over and over in the book of Genesis. It keeps coming up. To go east is not a good thing in the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, which direction do they go? East, away from the presence of God. When Cain murders his brother, interestingly enough, over worship, when he murders his brother, which direction is he banished to? He goes east. They keep going further east. When Abraham is having this war with the the king of Sodom, where are we told the king of Sodom is? It's east. We're reminded in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that it's east. To go east is a bad thing. And so Abraham is separating the children here. He's sending them in the direction. The the implication here is that this is the people of, of the devil. This is the people of the serpent, not the children of God. But he blesses, he blesses Isaac. Because to go east is to be, to not be a part of the covenant promise and plan of God, but to be blessed by God is to remain near his presence. And so as we look at the next block of verses here, we see that Abraham is memorialized. This is a an interesting tribute here. He lived a good old, to a good old age and he was gathered to his people. And that is a rather interesting phrase because it implies that there's something beyond this life, right? He was gathered to his people. Not all of his relatives were buried in the cave at Machpelah. No. So where is they being gathered at? It doesn't say, but the implication here is that there is something beyond this life. In the Old Testament, we don't see a fully formed doctrine of the resurrection. But what we do see is that they did not believe that death was the ultimate end. And we see this fleshed out even further when, they, when we see what they do with Abraham's remains. Now we've got to remember back to when Sarah died. Abraham bought this cave in Machpelah to bury her in. And the cave was actually in the promised land. And we saw that Abraham believed the promise of God so much, even though it was in the future that he was, his family was going to obtain this land, he buried his wife there, believing that God was going to fulfill the promise to his covenant people. And he bought it legally. He laid claim to it at a high price because of this trust that one day his people would possess it. And he would 
And he buried her there in faith that God was going to keep his promise. And now we see that Abraham's sons are doing the same thing. They're doing what Abraham asked and putting his remains with Sarah in the cave in Machpelah. Again, it's so important that we don't miss what a picture of faith this is for us. Abraham was promised so many things by God, and he had to be patient. He was promised a child, and it didn't come, and it didn't come. But God was good to his promise. Isaac was born to an old, barren couple long after Sarah could have conceived on her own. God brought her womb to life, and the promise was fulfilled in his timing by God's mighty hand, not by the human effort of Abraham. In fact, every time that Abraham tries to do things on his own, he messes it up. Every time. But God is faithful to his promise to Abraham. We see this constant reminder in Genesis that God works all things together for good and he fulfills his covenant promise to his people. And the message is is that humans are going to fail. And in fact, our efforts make things worse. But God's promise is fulfilled and God rescues his people. That's what he does. And that's the big story at work in this passage. We are once again resetting the story. Abraham is gone. But God's faithfulness is going to continue. And it's going to come through Isaac, just as he promised. Regardless of what the children of promise do, God is going to keep his promise. And we're going to see that, just like Abraham, Isaac is going to fail. Isaac is going to mess things up. But God's promise is going to continue to come through. Why? Because God's mighty hand ordains it. And we see that this is how the story is going to go as the passage tells us that God blessed Isaac. His hand is upon him. And this is a reminder that the covenant promise is on Isaac. It's not on Ishmael. But as the passage closes up, we read about the success of Ishmael. Now remember, God had promised Abraham that Ishmael would be a great nation. And this wasn't a promise that he would be in covenant with God. It wasn't a promise that through him a Messiah would come. No, it was about having lots of family, being a great nation, and having earthly success. And we see the reminder of this before we move on to Isaac's family. That's what we're looking at next week. Because the story really picks up next week with the birth of Jacob and Esau. We, we know those stories. Things get interesting again, right? But we've not seen much about Isaac since Abraham was willing to offer him as a sacrifice as God commanded. For being the child of the promise, we don't know much about Isaac at all, do we? We don't know hardly anything. But now that Abraham is gone, the story is shifting. The story is moving to Isaac. And so we also see a reminder of God's faithfulness to Ishmael. But this short passage, it seems relatively insignificant, is actually tying up loose ends. You might have read this, through this when you're reading the book of Genesis and going, okay, this is kind of kind of the flyover country of passages, okay? It's interesting, gives us some details, but who cares? You know, the life of Abraham has been complicated. That's been interesting. We could pull story threads from all over the place, story arcs everywhere, and follow all of this. But the passage here that we've read today is pulling us back in. It's saying all these things, all these loose ends in Abraham's life, we're going to come back to something significant here. 
Genesis isn't about where Ishmael has gone. It's not about all these other uh, sons that he has from the concubines. It's about the child of the promise. That's the story. That's the story. Genesis is about the promise. It's about the story of redemption. It is about God fulfilling his promise to destroy the work of the serpent. That's what it's about. That's what this passage is, is narrowing our focus back to, to look to the promise of the one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so as we wrap up today, I believe there's two important applications that we can walk away with from this passage. The first thing we need to remember is to follow the commands of God. And obviously this is a no-brainer, right? But we've seen here the conflict in the life of Abraham and the conflict that is to come in the life of his descendants. It all comes from Abraham stepping outside of the clear commands of God and Abraham going off on his own. God made a promise to Abraham and God kept it. But the unfaithfulness of Abraham is what causes the story to go off the rails, right? It's what causes all these threads that we can follow. When Abraham is disobedient, it causes trouble. God has made a covenant promise with his people, us. We've been saved by grace through faith, and he keeps that promise. But just like Abraham, you and I can go off the rails. Now there is forgiveness, there is mercy, but when we remain faithful to the commands of God, what happens is we avoid the conflicts that come from our disobedience. And so, may we be God's covenant people and may we seek him out in holiness and in faith as we trust in his promise of salvation. And that brings us to our second application from this passage. It's important that we remember the story of our redemption. As I mentioned a few moments ago, the book of Genesis could go off in an assortment of rabbit trails. It could follow all kinds of interesting stories that surely developed out of the family tensions created by the failures of Abraham to trust God. But Genesis continues to narrow the story back down. When, when our view gets too wide, Genesis brings us back to the promise. It brings us back to the Messiah. It brings us back to Jesus. And this is an important reminder for us. Because you and I can easily run off in different directions. But God keeps calling us back to himself, and he does it through the message of the gospel. Our redemption comes through the one he, he promised in Genesis. And that's what truly matters. It is the story of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension that gathers us to himself. When we hear and believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit brings us to life and into the covenant people of God. And that same message is now being used by the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and to call us to repentance. And through that message, the Spirit works to make us holy and to conform us to the image of Christ. And so may we be a people of God, continually called back to the story of redemption. And may, may we not only hear and believe it, but may we repeat the message to a lost and dying world that God may continue to use this saving message to gather his people to himself. Amen.